calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Marco Palmieri, and joining me once again as co-host is the fabulous Christina Teleska. Thank you. I'm feeling absolutely fabulous today. Speaking of fabulous, I once had a friend tell me that I have a very female aura. I still don't know what she meant. (laughs) That's funny because I was always called a tomboy. I actually, as a child, can remember being mistaken for a boy. And it bothered me then, but it, it wouldn't bother me now. Fair enough. And, you know, I've never felt uncomfortable with my assigned sex, but I count among my friends many people who have. And I know what an awful thing it is to be treated as others insist on seeing you rather than the way you know yourself to be. The protagonist of this week's story faces that kind of dilemma. Yes, and she's having to face it at this fragile age when her self-identity is still in process. And this is a two-part story, so we probably should just get right to it. A young woman who rejects her tribe's rigid gender roles participates in the male coming-of-age ritual and learns that there may be more than two choices, after all. This is part one of Riding the Shore of the River of Death, written by Kate Elliott and voiced by Rachel Fulgeniti. This wooded western country far from their tribal lands in the east, smelled raw and unpalatable to Carica, but the hawk that circled overhead had the same look as hawks in the grasslands. Some things were the same no matter where you went, even if you had to ride into the lands where foreigners made their homes to get what you wanted, even if you had to journey far from your father's authority and your mother's tent to seize the glory of your first kill. The reverberant thunk of an axe striking wood surprised her. She'd thought it was too early to hunt, because they had yet to see any sign of habitation. Ahead, barely visible within the stretch of pine and beech through which they rode, her brother Belek unslipped his spear from its brace against his boot and urged his mare into a run. 
Carica rose in her stirrups to watch him vanish into a clearing occluded by summer's leaves. Birds broke from cover, wings flashing. The clatter of weapons, a sharp shriek, and then a man's howl of pain chased off through the bright woodland. Edek, riding in front of her, whipped his horse forward. His voice raised in a furious burst of words as he and Carica broke out of the woods and into a clearing of grass, meadow flowers, bold green saplings, and a pair of sturdy young oak trees. Bellic's mare had lost her rider. She shied sideways and stood with head lifted and ears flat. Beside the oaks, two had fought. Bellic's spear had thrust true, skewering the foreign man through the torso, but the farmer's axe had cut into the flesh below Bellic's ribs before Bellic had finally killed the man with a sword thrust up under the ribs. Edic stood with mouth working soundlessly, watching as Bellic sawed off the head of the dead man with his bloodied knife. Blood leaked from Bellic's gut, trailing from under his long felt tunic and over the knees of his leather trousers, but he was determined to get that head. If he could present the head to the Bech before he died, then he would die as a man rather than a boy. His teeth were gritted and his eyes narrowed, but he uttered no word that might betray how much he hurt. Even when he got the head detached so it rolled away from the body, blood spilling brightly onto the grass, he said nothing, only uttered a gah of pain as he toppled over to one side. His left hand clutched the hair of the dead man. With his gaze he tracked the sky, skipping from cloud to cloud, and fetched up on Carica's face. He seemed about to speak, but instead passed out. Carica stared. One of the young oaks had a gash in its side, but the farmer hadn't chopped deep enough to fell it. Bugs crawled among the chips of wood cut from the trunk. A cluster of white flowers had been crushed by the farmer's boots. His red blood mingled with Bellock's, soaking into the grass. This could not be happening, could it? Every year boys rode out of the clans to seek their first kill, and every year... Some did not return. Riding the shore of the River of Death was the risk you took to become a man. Yet no lad rode out in the dawn's thunder, thinking death would capture him. Edic dismounted and knelt beside Belloc to untie the heavy tunic, opening it as one might unfold the wings of a downed bird. Seeing the deep axe cut and the white flash of exposed rib, he swore softly. Carica could not find words as she absorbed the death of her hopes. He'll never get home with this wound, said Edic. We'll have to leave him. He started, hearing a crack, but it was only Bellic's mare stepping on a fallen branch as it turned to move backward toward the familiarity of its herd. We can't leave him. Carica knew she had to speak quickly, before she succumbed to the lure of Edic's selfish suggestion. He is my brother, the Bech's son. It will bring shame on us if we abandon him. Edic shrugged. If we take him back, then you and I have no chance of taking ahead. 
You must see that. He can't ride. He's dead anyway. Let's leave him and ride on. Others have done it. She set her jaw against his tempting words. Other boys who were left to die hadn't already taken a head. He's taken his head, so we must give him a chance to die as a man. We'll lose all honor if we leave him, even if both of us took a head in our turn. I don't want to wait another season. I'm tired of being treated as a boy when I'm old enough to be a man. Go on alone if you wish, Edic the whiner. Carica forced out the mocking words, and Edic's sullen frown deepened with anger. You'll sour the milk with your curdling tongue. You can suckle on your grievances for another season. You'll get another chance to raid, as she would not. Last moon, the Bech's son from the Pechenik clan had delivered six mares to her father, with the promise of twenty sheep, ten fleeces, two bronze cauldrons, a gilded saddle, three gold-embroidered saddle blankets, five felt rugs, and a chest of gold necklaces and bronze belt clasps as her bride price. Her father's wives and the mothers of the tribe had been impressed by the offer. They had been charmed by Prince Vayek's respectful manners and pleasing speeches. Perhaps most of all, they had been dazzled by his handsome face and well-proportioned body, displayed to good effect in several bouts of wrestling, all of which he won against the best wrestlers of the Kirshot clan. Her father and uncles had praised his reputation as a mighty warrior, scourge of the Uze and Torque clans, and all the while their gazes had returned again and again to the deadly iron gleam of the griffin feathers he wore as his warrior's wings. Other warriors, even other Begs and their princely sons, wore ordinary wings, feathers fastened with wire to wooden frames that were riveted to an armored coat. Only a man who had slain a griffin could fly griffin wings. Such a man must be called a hero among men, celebrated praised and admired. Her father had decreed she would wed Prince Vayek at the next full moon, wed and be marked as a woman forever, even unto death. This was her last chance to prove her manhood. When she spoke, her voice was as harsh as a crow's. We'll weave a litter of sticks and drag him behind his horse. Dismounting, she turned her back so Edic could not see her wipe away the hot tears. Honor did not allow her to cry. She wanted to be a man and live a man's life, not a woman's. But she could not abandon her dying brother. Grass flattened under the weight of a litter as Bellick's mare labored up a long slope. Carica rode at a walk just in front of Bellick's horse, its lead tied to her saddle. Her own mare, summer coat shiny in the hot sun, flicked an ear at a fly. She glanced back at the land falling away to the west. She had lagged behind to shoot grouse in the brush that cloaked a stream, its banks marked at this distance by the crowd of trees and bushes flourishing alongside running water. She squinted into the westering sun, scanning the land for pursuers, but saw no movement. Yesterday they had left the broken woodland country behind. Out here under the unfenced sky, 
They'd flown beyond the range of the farmers and their stinking fields. From ahead, Edic called her name. She whistled piercingly to let him know she was coming. The two birds she'd killed dangled from a line hooked to the saddle of Belek's horse. Belek himself lay strapped to the litter they had woven of sapling branches. He had drifted in and out of consciousness for four days. It was amazing he was still alive, but he had swallowed drips and drops of mare's blood, enough to keep breath in his body. Now, however, his own blood frothed at his lips. The end would come soon. Maybe if he died now, before they reached the tents of the Kirshot clan, she and Edic could turn immediately around, ride back west, and take up their hunt in fresh territory. Yet even to think this brought shame. Belek deserved to die as a man, whatever it meant to her. She topped the rise to see hills rolling all the way to the eastern horizon. Dropping smoothly away from her horse's hooves lay a long grassy hollow, half in shadow with the late afternoon light. The ground bellied up again beyond the hollow like a pregnant woman's distended abdomen. Edic had dismounted partway up the farther slope. He'd stripped out of his tunic in the heat and crouched with the sun on his back as he examined the ground. Above him, thick blocks of stone stood like sentries at the height of the hill, a stone circle, dark and forbidding. The sight of the heavy stones made her ears tingle, as though someone was trying to whisper a warning, but couldn't speak loudly enough for her to hear. A hiss of fear escaped her, and at once she spat to avert spirits who might have heard that hiss and seek to capture her fear and use it against her. She whistled again, but Edic did not look up. With its reins dropped over its head, his mount grazed in a slow munch up the slope toward the looming stones. He had his dagger out and was digging at the dirt. His quiver shifted on his bare back as he hunkered forward. What was he doing, leaving himself vulnerable like that? She nudged her mare forward. When the reins tightened and pulled, Belloc's mare braced stubbornly, then gave in and followed. The litter bumped over a rough patch of ground. Belloc grunted, whimpered. Eyes fluttering, he muttered spirit words forced out of him where he lay spinning between the living world and the world of the spirits. A bubble of blood swelled and popped on his lips. The head of the farmer he had slain bumped at his thigh, its lank hair tangled in his fingers. The skin had gone gray, and it stank. Edic did not look up when she halted behind him. She touched the hilt of the sword slung across her back. Once they reached the tribe, she would have to give it back to her uncle. Only men carried swords. What if I had been your enemy? she asked. She drew the sword in a swift, practiced slide and lowered its tip to brush Edic between the shoulder blades. He did not look up or even respond. He was trying to pry something out of the densely packed soil. The sun warmed his back as he strained. As the quiver shifted with each of his movements, the old festival scars on his back pulled and retracted, displaying the breadth of his back to great advantage. She didn't like Edic much. 
He was good-looking enough to expect girls to admire him, but his family wasn't wealthy enough that he could marry where he pleased, and that had made him bitter. So in a way she understood his sulks and frowns, and she could still ogle his back, sweating and slick under the sun's weight. Suddenly he hooked his dagger under an object and with a grunt freed it from an entangling root and the weight of moist soil. When he flipped it into plain view, she sucked in breath between teeth in astonishment. The sun flashed in their eyes, and she threw up a hand to shield herself from the flare. Edic cried out. From Belloc came a horrible shriek, more like the rasp of a knife on stone than a human cry. Only the horses seemed unmoved. She lowered her hand cautiously. At first glance, the object seemed nothing more than an earth-encrusted feather. But as Edic cautiously wiped the veins with the sleeve of his tunic, the cloth separated as though sliced. Where dirt flaked away, the feather glinted with a metallic sheen unlike that of any bird's feather. It's a griffin's feather, said Edic. Carica was too amazed and humbled to speak. Awed by its solidity, its beauty, its strength, its sacred, powerful magic. Only shamans and heroes possessed griffin feathers. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. He shifted in his crouch to measure her, eyes narrowed. Even a humble clansman can aspire to wed a Beck's daughter, if he brings a griffin's feather as her bride price. Carica snorted. Even one you dug up from the dirt? The gods give gifts to those they favor. You'll set yourself against the mighty Vayak and the entire Pachinet clan? Who will listen to your bleeding? even with a griffin feather in your hand to dazzle their eyes. Who will listen? Maybe the one who matters most. How he stared. He'd never been so bold before. She shook a hand in annoyance, like swatting away a fly, and he flushed, mouth twisting downward. The feather's glamour faded as the shadow of afternoon crept over their position, and yet, at the height of the hill to the east, a glimmer still brightened the air. How could they see the setting sun's flash when they were facing east, not west? Look, she cried. A woman stood framed and gleaming within the western portal of stone and lintel. Sparks flowered above the stones in a pattern, like the unfurling of wings sewn out of gold, the fading banner of a phoenix. So brief its passage, the last embers floating in the air snapped, winked bright, and vanished. Edic stared, mouth agape. The woman, not so very far away, watched them. She had black hair, bound into braids but uncovered, and a brown face and dark hands. She wore sandals bound by straps that wound up her calves over tight leggings suitable for riding. 
a close-fitting bodice of supple leather was laced over a white shirt, but she wore no decent skirts or heavy knee-length tunic or long robe. Her legs were gloved in cloth, but she might as well have been bare, for you could imagine her shape quite easily. She wore no other clothing at all, unless one could count as clothing her wealth of necklaces. Made of gold and beads, they draped thickly around her shoulders like a collar of bright armor. A woman of the Kuman people, who displayed herself so brazenly, would have been staked down and had the cattle herd driven across her to obliterate her shame. But this woman seemed unaware of her own nakedness. Eddick could not stop staring at that shapely bodice and those form-fitting trousers, even as the woman hefted her spear and regarded them with no sign of fear. Shh! hissed Eddick, warding himself with a gesture. A witch! A witch, maybe, but armed with stone like a savage, muttered Carica in disgust. Anyway, even a woman who carried a spear was of no use to her. A shape moved behind the foreigner. Broad shoulders, long hair, sharp nose. Of course, no woman would be traveling alone. Eddick did not see the man because he was blinded by lust. Let him hesitate, and she would take the prize. This was her chance to take a head and never have to marry the Pechenek Bech's son. Carica sliced the halter rope that bound Bellic's horse to her saddle and drove her mare up the hill. A Kuman warrior rode in silence, for he had wings to sing the song of battle for him. She had no wings yet. Only men were allowed to wear armor and thereby fly the honored pennant of warrior's wings. But she clamped her lips tight down over a woman's trilling ululation, the goad to victory. She would ride in silence like a man. The horse was sure-footed and the hill none too steep. Eddick had only a moment in which to cry out an unheeded question before he scrambled for his mount. Ahead, the woman retreated behind one of the huge stones. The man had vanished. Carica grinned, yanked her mare to the right, and swung round to enter the stone circle at a different angle so she could flank them. Sister, beware! The words rasped at the edge of her hearing. It was too late. She hit the trap with all the force of her mare's weight and her own fierce desire for a different life than the one that awaited her. A sheet of pebbles spun under its hooves. A taut line of rope took her at the neck, and she went tumbling. She hit the ground so hard, head cracking against stone, that she could not move. The present world faded until she could see, beyond it, into the shimmering lights of the spirit world, where untethered souls wept and whispered and danced. Belek reached out to her, his hand as insubstantial as the fog that swallows the valleys, yet never truly possesses them. It was his spirit voice she heard, because he was strong enough in magic for his spirit to bridge the gap. Sister! Take my hand. I will not go with you to the other side, she cried, although no sound left her mouth. In the spirit world, only shamans and animals could speak out loud. But I will drag you back here if it takes all my strength. 
She grasped his hand and tugged. A fire as fierce as the god's anger rose up to greet her. She had to shield her eyes from its heat and searing power. She blinked back tears as the present world came into focus again. It was night. Twilight had passed in what seemed to her only an instant, while she had swum out of the spirit world. Pebbles ground uncomfortably into her buttocks. A stalk of grass tickled the underside of one wrist. Tiny feet tracked on her forehead, then vanished as the creature flew. She sat propped against the rough wall of standing stones, wrists and ankles bound. How had this happened? She could not remember. The scene before her lay in sullen, colorless tones, lit by a grazing moon and by the blazing stars. Each point of light marked a burning arrow shot into the heavens by the warrior Tarkin. He who had bred with a female griffin and fathered the Kuman people. The flaring light of a campfire stung her eyes. The man crouched before it, raking red coals to one side. He had a thick beard, like the northern farmers, and skin pale enough that it was easy to follow his gestures as he efficiently scalded and plucked her grouse and roasted them over coals. Grease dripped and sizzled, the smell so sweet it was an insult thrown in her face. Where were the others? Edic lay well out of her reach, slumped against one of the giant stones. The horses stood hobbled just beyond the nimbus of light. She saw them only as shapes. Bellic's litter lay at the edge of the harsh and restless flare of the fire. Still strapped to the litter, he moaned and shuddered. The woman appeared out of the darkness as abruptly as a shaman's evil dream. She crouched beside him with both hands extended. Lips moving but without sound, she sprinkled grains of dirt or flakes of herbs over his body. Fear came on Carica, in the same way a spirit sickness does, penetrating the eyes first and sinking down to lodge in the throat and, at last, to grasp hold of her belly like an ailment. There are ways to animate dead flesh with sorcery. She had to stop the working, or Bellic would be trapped by this creature's magic and never able to find his way past the spirit lands to the ancient home of First Grandfather along the path lit by Tarkin's flaming arrows. But she could not move, not even to push her foot along the ground to kick the corpse and dislodge Bellic's spirit. Mist and darkness writhed between dying youth and foreign woman. With a powerful inhalation, the woman sucked in the cloud. Bellic thrashed as foam speckled his lips. The witch rocked forward to balance so lightly on her toes that Carica was sure she would fall forward onto Bellic's unprotected chest. Instead, the woman exhaled, her breath loud in the silence. The air glittered with sparks expelled from her mouth. They dissolved into the youth's flesh, as the witch settled smoothly back on her heels. She lifted her gaze to look directly at Carica. No matter how vulnerable she appeared, indecently clothed and armed only with a stone-pointed spear in the midst of the grasslands, she had power. As the beck 
Bolkazu, ancestor of Karaka's ancestors, had wrapped himself in an impenetrable coat of armor in his triumphant war against the Westerners, this woman was armed with something more dangerous than a physical weapon. She was not the bearded man's wife or slave, but his master. She nodded to mark Karaka's gaze and spoke curtly in a language unlike any of those muttered by the tribe's slaves. Karaka shook her head, understanding nothing. It would be better to kill the witch, but in the event she had no choice except to negotiate from a position of weakness. What do you want from us? My father will pay a ransom. As if her voice awakened him, Belloc murmured, as in a daze, Carica, are you there? Rope creaked as he fought with unexpected strength against his bonds. He looked up at the woman crouched above him. Who are you? Where is my sister? The witch rose easily to her feet and moved away into the gloom. The bearded man stood up and followed her. Carica heard them speaking, voices trading back and forth in the manner of equals, not master and slave. Two warriors might converse in such tones, debating the best direction for a good hunt, or two female cousins, or friendly co-wives, to unravel an obstacle tangling the weave of family life within their tents. Belek tried again, voice spiking as he tried to control his fear. Karika? Edik? Shh! Karika spoke in a calming voice. She adored her brother, son of her father's third wife, but he was the kind of person who felt each least pebble beneath him when he slept, and although he never complained, what Kuman child would and not get beaten for being weak. He would shift and scoot and brush at the ground all night to get comfortable and thus disturb any who slept next to him. We're here, Belek. We had to tie you down to keep you on the litter. You'd taken a wound. Now we have been captured by foreigners. I feel a sting in my gut. Ah! Ah! He grunted, bit back a curse, thapped his head against the litter, and yelped. These healthy noises, evidence of his return from the threshold of the spirit world, sang in her belly with joy. I remember when I charged that dirty farmer, but nothing after it. Did I get his head? Yes, we tied it to your belt. His hand groped. He found the greasy hair. Tarkin's blessings. But what happened to me? He deserved to know the worst. The woman is a witch. She trapped us with sorcery. I think she must have healed you. Aye, better dead than in her debt. If it's true, I am bound to her, and she can take from me whatever she wants in payment. His fretful tone irritated her. No sense panicking. Best we get free of her, then. It's not so simple. The binding which heals has its roots in the spirit world and can't be so easily escaped. Her magic can follow me wherever I go. Then it's best we get back to the tribe quickly and ask for the shamans to intercede. There's a knife at your belt. You should be able to cut yourself loose. Obedient, as always, to her suggestions, he writhed under the confining ropes. Eh, fa, knife's gone.
Night lay everywhere over them. The fattening moon grazed on its dark pastures. Carica clenched her teeth in frustration. There must be some way to free themselves. Only then did she see a stockpile of weapons. There, good, cure-shot steel swords, iron-pointed arrows and iron-tipped spears, heaped beyond the campfire, barely visible in the darkness. A stubborn gleam betrayed the griffin's feather, resting atop the loot in the seat of honor. The foreigners ceased speaking and walked back into the fire's aura. The witch still carried her primitive spear, and she was now brandishing a knife that gleamed in black splendor. An ugly gash of obsidian chipped away to make one sharp edge. She had not even bothered to arm herself with the better weapons she had captured, although the bearded man wore a decent iron sword at his side, foreign in its heft and length. The woman crouched again beside Belek. Anything was better than pleading. That was a woman's duty, not a man's. But the knife's evil gleam woke such fear in Carica's heart that she knew such distinctions no longer mattered. I beg you, listen to my words. Belek is the honored son of the Kirshat Bech's third wife. He has powerful magic. The shamans have said so. He has already entered the first tent of apprenticeship. To kill him would be to release his anger and his untrained power into the spirit world. You don't want that. Where there is no understanding, there can be no response. And yet, the woman weighed her sorcerer's knife and, with a flicker of a smile, sheathed it. Instead, she slid a finger's-length needle of bone from a pouch slung from her belt. Leather cord bit into Carica's skin, tightening as she wiggled her hands and only easing its bite when she stilled. She could do nothing to spare Belek whatever torture this creature meant to inflict on him. Witchcraft had bound her to the rock. The woman caught hold of her own tongue. With exaggerated care, she slid the fine needle point through thick pink flesh. Then, with a delicacy made more horrifying for the sight of her bland expression in the face of self-mutilation, she slid the needle back out of her tongue, leaned over Belek, and let those drops of blood mingle with the drying froth on Belek's lips. He struggled, but he too was bound tight. He gasped, swallowed, grimaced. Then he sighed, as if his breath had been pulled out of him, and abruptly his head lolled back. He had fainted, or been murdered. Tarkin's curse on you, Carica shouted. I'll have my revenge in my brother's name, and in the name of the Kirshat tribe. Our father will drive his warband against you, even to the ends of the earth. The woman laughed, and Carica sputtered to a halt, her mouth suddenly too dry to moisten words. The skin on her neck crawled, as with warning of a storm about to blow down over the grass. The witch gestured, and the bearded man came forward, knelt beside Belek, and dribbled water from a pouch into his mouth. Belek sputtered, choke, spat, eyes blinking furiously. 
The bearded man stoppered the pouch and dragged the litter over to rest in the lee of the great stone to Carica's right. He offered water to Carica wordlessly, and she tipped back her head to let the cool liquid flow down her parched throat. She knew better than to refuse it. She needed time to think about that knowing laugh. He returned to the fire, tearing apart the grouse. He ate one, wrapped the rest of the meat in a woven grass mat, then curled up on the ground beneath a cloak. The woman settled down cross-legged to stare into the fire. Occasionally, she fed it with dried pats of dung. Night passed, sluggish and sleepy. Carica dozed, woke, tried to worm her way out of her bonds, but could not. No matter how hard she tried to roll away from the monolith, she could not separate herself from the stone. She hissed to get Bellock's attention, saw his eyes roll and his mouth work, but no sound emerged except for a faint, wordless groan. The witchwoman did not stir from her silent contemplation of the campfire. Now and again a bead of blood leaked from between her lips, and each time as it purled on her lips, she licked it away, as if loath to let even that droplet escape her. She did not speak to them did not test the bonds that held them, only waited, tasting nothing except her own blood. Very late, a sword moon, thin and curved, rose out of the east. Soon after, the light changed, darkness lightening to gray, and at last seeding victory to the pinkish tint of dawn. The woman roused, Picking up the pouch, she trickled water into Bellock's mouth. He gulped, obviously awake, but still he said nothing. She approached Carica. As she leaned in to offer water, Carica caught the scent of her, like hot sand and bitter root. She tried to grab at her with her teeth, any way of fighting back, but the woman jumped nimbly back and grinned mockingly. The man chuckled and spoke words in their harsh foreign tongue as he flung off the cloak and stretched to warm his muscles. The brilliant disk of the sun nosed above the horizon to paint the world in daylight colors. From the bundle of gear heaped by a stone, the bearded man unearthed a shovel and set to work digging a shallow ditch just outside the limit of the stones. It was hard work, even though he was only scraping away enough of the carpet of grass and its dense tangle of roots to reveal the black earth. The woman joined him, taking a turn. The grasslands were tough, like its people, unwilling to yield up even this much. Both soon stripped down to shirt and trousers, their shirts sticking to their backs, wet through with sweat. It was slaves' work, yet they tossed words back and forth in the manner of free men. And although the woman's form was strikingly revealed, breasts outlined by the shirt's fabric, nipples erect from the effort and heat, the bearded man never stared at her as men stared at women whose bodies they wanted to conquer. He just talked, and she replied, and they passed the shovel back and forth, sharing the work as the ditch steadily grew from a scar to a curve to a half-circle around the stones. Carica waited until they had moved out of sight behind her. St. Bellic. Etic. 
Yet, when there came no answer, she was afraid to speak louder lest she be overheard. The sun crept up off the eastern horizon as the foreigners toiled. Shadows shortened and shifted. The sloping land came clear as light swallowed the last hollows of darkness. It was a cloudless day, a scalding blue that hurt the eye. Kerika measured the sun's slow rise between squinted eyes. Two hands, four hands. A pair of vultures circled overhead but did not land. The steady scrape of the shovel and the spatter of clumps of dirt sprayed on the ground serenaded her, moving on from behind her and around to her right, closing the circle. The sound caught her ear first, as a faint discordance beneath the noise of digging. She had heard this precious and familiar music all her life, marked it as eagerly as the ring of bells on the sheeps she was set to watch as a little girl, or the scuff of bare feet spinning in the dances of festival time. The wind sings with the breath of battle, the flight of the winged riders, the warriors of the Kuman people. It whistles like the approach of griffins whose feathers, grown out of the metals of the earth, thrum their high calls in the air. Kerika scrambled to get her feet under her, shoved up along the rough surface of the stone. She had to see, even if she couldn't escape the stone's grip. Their enemies heard Kuman warriors before they saw them, and some stood in wonder, not knowing what that whirring presaged, while others froze in fear, knowing they could not run fast enough to outpace galloping horses. Bellic struggled against the ropes that bound him, but gained nothing. Edic neither moved nor spoke. The woman and bearded man had worked almost all the way around the stones. The woman spoke. The man stopped digging. They stood in profile, listening. She shook her head, and together, shoulders tense, they trotted back into the stones straight to Edic's limp body. The bearded man grabbed the lad by his ankles and dragged him down to the scar. The body lay tumbled there, impossible to say if he was breathing. The woman gestured peremptorily, and the bearded man leaped away from the bare earth and ran up to the nearest stone, leaning on the haft of the shovel, panting from the exertion as he watched her through narrowed eyes. The obsidian blade flashed in the sun. She bent, grabbed Edic's hair, and tugged his head back to expose his throat. With a single cut, she sliced deep. Kerika yelped. Did the witch mean to take Edic's head as a trophy, as Kuman lads must take a head to prove themselves as men? Belek coughed, chin lifting, feet and hands twitching as he fought against his bonds. He could see everything but do nothing. Blood pumped sluggishly from Edic's throat. The witch grabbed him by the ankles and with his face in the dirt and his life's blood spilling onto the black earth, dragged him along the scar away around the circle. All the while her lips moved, although Kerika heard no words. The bearded man wiped his mustache and nose with the back of a grimy hand, shrugged his shoulders to loosen the strain of digging, and dropped the shovel beside their gear. With the casual grace of a man accustomed to fighting, 
He pulled on a quilted coat and over it a leather coat, reinforced with overlapping metal plates. He set out two black crossbows, levering each back to hook the trigger and ready a bolt. After, he drew on gloves and strapped on a helm before gathering up a bow as tall as he was, a quiver of arrows, an axe, and his sword, and trotting away out of Carica's line of sight, again carrying the shovel. The woman appeared at the other limit of the scar, still towing Edic's body. Where they had ceased digging, a gap opened, about five paces wide. He gestured with the shovel. She shook her head. With a lift of her chin seeming to indicate the now obvious singing of wings, the two argued, a quick and brutal exchange silenced by two emphatic words she spat out. She arranged the body to block as much of the gap as possible. With a resigned shrug, the bearded man took up a defensive position behind one of the stones to line up on the gap. Sorry to end it there for now, but we'll be feeding your ears with part two in just one week. And believe me, you won't want to miss it. But before we go, Christina, any quick thoughts about part one? Sorry, no time to chat. I'm already heading straight into part two of this story. Uh, so be it. I'll just say that I was pulled into Kate Elliott's world building and Carica's story immediately and can't wait to see how it ends. If you feel that way too, why not give us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice? And join us next week for part two. Until then, pleasant nightmares. You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Stories to Keep You Up at Night, Episode 79, features Riding the Shore of the River of Death by Kate Elliott. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Mary Osadolahi. Associate produced by Alexis Latshaw. And executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Christina Teleska. Performed by Rachel Fulginetti. Audio produced by Amanda Rose Smith and Mosaic Audio. Additional editing by Angela Yi. Original theme by Hashem Osadolahi. Featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.